I really got this idea in my head since I was when I was 12, and I saw this man out walking around the world. Well, I saw an article of him walking around the world, and I thought, well, boy, I didn't know you could even think of such a thing. So, <laughs> and I, I don't know what happened in my other life <laughs> where it made some deep analysis to figure out why that resonated with me. But regardless, that really tickled my fancy. And I thought, well, gee, that's how I want to go see the world. Someday I'm going to walk. Episode 80, Polly Latovsky, Walking Around the World, Part 2. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Welcome to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Travis. This is part two of the Polly Latovsky interview, where she walked around the entire world on foot. And if you haven't heard the first part, just go back to the previous episode before this and check it out before you continue on here. So let's get on to the rest of the interview with Polly. You wrote Three Miles Per Hour, The Adventure of One Woman's Walk Around the World. Can you go into a little bit about that book? And uh, I think there's some uh, documentary available as well. So tell our listeners about the, the book you wrote about this journey and, and where they can find it. Yeah, thank you. Um, it took me five years to walk around the world and six years to write the book about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. And, you know, I kept feeling, I think I felt guilty every day, you know, that I should, but I have a life. I have, you know, I'm working full-time and part-time and uh, blah, 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 blah. Life gets in the way. And I felt guilty. I've got to write the book. Before I forget everything, I've got to write the book. And, in fact, what happened is after six years, and I really finally... Um, planted myself and spewed it all out. In fact, I was pleased because at that point I had learned all the lessons that in fact I did take with me. It would have been a very different book if I just sat down the day after I finished and started writing a book. How do I know the lessons that in fact I really took with me and in the corporate world, in the business world, in my life every day, would I, you know, if I'd sat down the day after it would have been assuming what the lessons have been. And now I know what the lessons have been. It's now been 11 years since I finished. I finished in August of, uh, well, July 30th, 2004. So it's near. And yeah, so now I know the lessons. But the book came out a, a few years ago. And it's hard to take five years where there are extreme adventures every single day, especially across India. It's just crazy how every day was, could have been a book itself, frankly. And because it's right after 9-11, there are riots in the streets of India and that kind of thing. And I got swept up in some of them, this kind of thing. So to take a story that's five years and narrow it down into a legible book <laughs> it sounds no, painstaking. <laughs> it really, really was. But nonetheless, I'm I'm very proud of it. And it's called Three Miles Per Hour, The Adventures of One Woman's Walk Around the World. And it's gone on to do very well. 
and it's won six national awards. And there is someone in L.A. trying to pitch it out and be this kind of thing. And, yes, there's been a documentary made, and that's been showing on PBS around the country. And it will be showing in Denver on an access channel throughout September. So if anyone's in Colorado and going on to Channel 6, I believe it is, and Channel 8, one of the two. And uh, But anyway, any, any of them can be bought on Amazon, and the documentary, of course, is on Netflix as well, um, or on my website. My website is just my name, Holly Litowski, um, which I'm sure is so easy to spell for everyone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's help them out. It's Polly, L-E-T-O-F-S-K-Y dot com. That's right. That's right. Let of Sky are the three words of Stoll Litowski, Let of Sky. And, uh, no, in fact, uh, yeah, make a long story short, um, when I got done with my book, I perused my publishing options and went with a small local independent publisher, and it was the worst decision I could have made. And, um, uh, total con artist, the whole thing. And what that did for me is launch me into the publishing world. And, it, w- it wasn't that quick or anything, but uh, so now I help other people through the self-publishing of their books so they, in fact, don't get ripped off. And so it's some of the toughest lessons that we go to lead to great things. So now that's what I do. I am a publishing consultant, and I also do a lot of motivational speaking around the country. That's oh, what I do cool. now. I settled in pretty seamlessly. You know, everyone was worried about how I would settle in after literally living on the road for five years. And I really settled in very seamlessly, very, very, very ready for my next chapter that includes a fridge. <laughs> and, <laughs> a bed. That's <laughs> yours. And my own bed. <laughs> and living living life without a map, meaning I can just walk around town and know where I'm going. You know, I had a map in my hand all day every day for five years and it was always like where's my map where's my map again before gps is so this was my lifeline have to have my map so to finally not have to have a map in my hand which of course now i magically do because of the smartphone but um yeah i you know i kept track of all these all these weird odd statistics that no one would care about, but I was entertaining myself. And one of those stats was how many maps did I buy, <laughs> you know, and how much money did I buy, find along the side of the road over <laughs> the years, et cetera. And it, so that was fun. And I added it up and it was like 756 maps I bought. Wow. Just think how much money that is. Holy that was God. a good portion of my budget actually was just maps. So how would that help me today? I would, I would have all that extra money. Because I wouldn't need it. We have our smartphones. Yeah, it's crazy to think so, yeah, about that. In this, you know, today, if we were to plan a trip like this, we would just hop onto to Google Earth or Google Maps and plot the trip, and it'll tell us exactly how long it's going to take. Even if we want to walk, it will calculate that. And we drop it over to our GPS or our phone, and we set out feeling confident. But you know, you did this in in the day when cell phones were available, but they weren't mapping things for us. They were just there to take calls and maybe a text message or two. Um, so the it is amazing how much it's changed and just our 
our thought process of going through a planning a trip like that would be so much easier. It would make it seem so much more simple, yet still insanely, uh, you know, insanely big as far as planning a trip. I will tell you that a struggle that people have doing this kind of thing now, and I don't mean so much walking around the world because so many people are doing that, right? But there are a lot of people uh, biking and walking across the country. And there's there's this group of, we have a Facebook group, everybody walking across the country or wants to or has, whatever. And one of the big problems that they face is their time online. Because some people are literally walking, looking at their phone, <laughs> and tweeting and Facebooking, blogging, etc., and in fact, they're taken out of the moment. Yeah. They're not seeing what's around them. So, you, you know, it's a, it's a discussion that we have a lot. And I really believe so strongly that I did this at the exact perfect time in history. I really did. I had Internet access, not on my phone, but from village to village, because people in the third world can't afford computers at home. So they have internet cafes everywhere. And I would literally be walking down the road and see an internet cafe and pop in and be in contact with my friends and family back home and turn right out of the building and keep going. So I felt comfortable that I could be in touch with people. And I did have a cell phone. Texting didn't really exist yet. You know, that came about, gosh, halfway through my journey anyway. And it still wasn't big particularly among Americans. It wasn't big yet. It hit really big in other parts of the world before it hit America. So even if I did text someone at home, they wouldn't have known what that weird sound was. <laughs> <laughs> what that weird noise coming on my phone? Right. So it really wasn't um, a big deal. It, but it, it was evolving so fast. But they, we didn't have social media yet. In fact, we didn't really have blogging yet. In fact, I was almost home. I was just about six months from being home when I got a call from Forbes online magazine that said, congratulations, we have given your blog, you know, our, 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 it was like second prize for the year. I was like, oh my gosh, thanks. That was fantastic. I was like, what's a blog? <laughs> so that was well into 2004 and I hadn't at least me, hadn't realized that this word had evolved into web blog, blog. And so I didn't know what that was. I was like, thank you so much. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I appreciate so, it, though. So the, the point is that um, I think I went at the right time because now people get out of that moment and, and can't appreciate what they're seeing and feeling. They get swept up in you know, wanting to stay connected with their friends and family, but losing the connection that they have in their immediate surroundings. Right. And it's an issue that people have to get their heads around when they do something like this today. I spoke with one person who they made an agreement with themselves. They would check their phone twice a day, in the morning and at night. And otherwise, it was hidden away unless they really needed it for directions, etc. But you have to come up with those guidelines or you can be swept up. In fact, miss everything. And then what's the point? So I think I went at the right time. I felt connected, but not swept up. I could still feel the energy and the moments around me. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I wouldn't have thought about that, but it's, I imagine it's a bit of a, a subconscious safety net 
in a way to be attached via social media. It's almost like floating away from the dock and hanging on to the rope that's still tied to the dock. <laughs> you know, it's that's really good. just feeling yeah. like, uh, well, I still have that little connection, so I'm safe, I'm good, and you know, that's there in my pocket. And I think you're right to be out there without that safety net um, probably will let you experience this in, in a much better way than than you possibly could now, unless you threw all that away and and absolutely committed not to check it until you got back. There was a period for, gosh, um, uh, through the whole center of India, because I went through right through the center, which is tribal area, and they start, and that was 2002, early, early 2002, January, February, March. So it, they didn't have their cell phone towers up. I still don't know if they do, but it was tribal area. So I didn't have a cell phone across India. So... I really wasn't able to keep in touch with my friends and family until the odd occasion when I would find an internet cafe. So certainly there was no calling or anything else. So there was a period, two weeks at a stretch, where I wouldn't be in touch. So that being connected really helps your loved ones feel connected to you as well because they've got to be nervous. 9-11's just happened. I'm walking through India, and they're seeing stories about riots. They've got to be nervous. So that was a that was a, a safety tool for them as well to hear from me. So if two weeks at a stretch are going on, and they know I'm walking through this tribal area that's in the middle of riot, how do they feel? Right. So, so, yeah, that was the only time I really was not available at all. Yeah, it ends up being a little nerve-wracking for them if you can't uh, continue connecting on a on a regular basis, but it's just part of it. Yeah, I talk to people now. Of course, people email me and ask any advice because they want to, you know, walk across the country or something similar, and and their families aren't necessarily supportive, and they're some put their foot down that they can't do this walk it's too dangerous and i have to explain to these walkers that you've had your head around it you understand it and you see it clearly so understand it where your parents and your family are coming from they this is brand new to them and all they hear is the six o'clock news and so they're very nervous for you so i would make a deal with them make a deal and i've sometimes called it a contract even a constitution with them that what are your fears? I'll address those fears for you. And I'll text you every three hours. Every three hours, I'll text you say I'm okay. Every, whatever the agreement is. But you have to understand that thought about this for years like you did. So do what you need to do to make your loved ones understand and clarify and, and so they can support you. And... I, I frankly didn't really have that because again, texting didn't really exist. Right. <laughs> and this, but I was in touch with them. I understood that. You know, they're probably really nervous. I mean, I don't have kids, but I have cats, and if they go missing for you know three minutes, I'm out of my mind. So <laughs> I can't imagine what my parents were really going through when 9/11 breaks out, and I say, no, 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 I'm still going. Yeah, that's right. I'm moving into Southeast Asia. And across India, which is just near Afghanistan, they must have been out of their minds. Yeah, all the worst thoughts come out, for sure. Yeah, I wanted to respect that and respect where they're coming from and 
do what I needed to do to help them. Absolutely. Be good with it. Let's talk car racks, specifically Yakima and Thule. Chances are, if you're listening to our show, you either have one, want one, or you're going to need a car rack soon. Car racks, whether on the roof or on the back, need a good set of locks to keep your gear locked down to the rack and to your car. Good news. Our new sponsor, Z-Lock, has new lock sets for all Thule and Yakima racks at about one-third less than anywhere else. These lock cores are sourced from the original manufacturer and include bonus keys. Need replacement keys or cores matched to your current lock code? Z-Lock has replacement options even if you've lost all of your keys and don't know your key number. Check this out. Z-Lock is offering Adventure Sports Podcast listeners an additional 20% off their already low prices plus free shipping. Just enter the code ADVENTURE at checkout and you'll save up to 50% off a of retail. Go to zlock.com forward slash adventure. That's Z-E-L-O-C-K dot com forward slash adventure and save. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new Flame at 180TAC.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. So if you had to pick one experience on this entire trip that you would just say it was the most amazing thing that I came across, what would that story be? Well, let me give you the long answer is that there were some really big moments. Like when I walked into Mumbai, India, Gandhi's granddaughter greeted me. And she gave me something that belonged to Gandhi. Wow. Well, of course, that's a huge moment in anybody's life. But there's also a hundred people around, and I know I'm on, as opposed to really just getting wrapped up in the moment. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So those moments are big, but there's other moments that are just, just me and nobody else. And there are moments you can't really describe when someone says, what are your favorite moments? One of those moments was walking into London. It was, it was a late fall night. So even though it's like, you know, 4.35 o'clock, it's dark and people are just getting off work and they're running about with their cell phones and their briefcases and they're running to the tube and the pub in their lives. And I walked in just before the Iran or the Iraq war started. And I don't know London from anything else. And I was looking at my map. Of course. And I was like, well, there's five bridges to get into London from here. I don't know one from another. I'll just choose one randomly. And I, the one that I chose put me right in front of Big Ben. And 
the parliament building where I know Tony Blair is talking to George Bush right now about the Iraq war and it's going to change the world. And people are bustling about and I'm walking over the Thames River with it glowing and sparkling and the moon is going on full force. And I just thought, well, I've walked here. I've walked from Colorado to London. And it was just this magical moment where all six of your senses are alive and in full bore. And it's that kind of moment that nobody else would understand. You just have to be there and no one's there to share it. And even if they were, they wouldn't get it because I was the only one that knew the whole story, even though, of course, my parents were in on most everything. It was a moment of of pride and you're just on full alert and you're just swept into all of it. So there was that kind of moment. There was also the moment of arriving into New York City after everything that the world had been through since I'd left the U.S. shores in the fall of 1999. The world had gone through a lot. Certainly my country had gone through a lot. Had gone through 9-11, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, anthrax in the capital. And I remember being very excited to be coming home. But I was also very nervous. Nervous that I had gone out to discover all these other countries, all these other cultures and people and their heritage and history. And what if I had gone out and discovered all that and then come home and don't even recognize my own country and culture and people anymore? It was a very, very real fear. So when I arrived into New York City and I was looking out that plane window of New York City minus the two twin towers. And then, of course, I got the bus into New York City and turned into Times Square and lights of 42nd Street and the flags waving from everywhere. And I just, you know, all those fears just went away and I just fell in love. And I, it was this rediscovery of America as if I'd never seen her before. You know, all these great things that I was seeing as if seeing for the very first time as I started walking across America. And it was the greatest time of my life. It was sort of my prize for persevering through Asia and a surprisingly difficult Europe. And I just kept putting one foot and step in front of the other during the riots. You know, the 118 degree heat of India when I didn't know exactly where these steps were taking me, but I just kept getting up every morning and putting one foot in front of the other. And this was my pride walking across America and discovering my own heritage as if seeing it for the first time. Walking through all the small towns. It's the greatest time of my life. That's more than a moment, but that was the singular greatest time of my life, walking across America. Huh. Yeah, it's interesting. I bet it's a, an absolutely the, the epitome of a bittersweet moment to, to arrive onto your own soil again after experiencing all of that. Um, you're you're afraid to leave it in a way that you're happy to be back, but in in a way afraid to be back at the same time. Yeah, and really, you know, you're coming around the world and you're seeing how the all these cultures came into America to form America to become this melting pot, and everybody 
brought, whether they knew it or not, they're bringing a piece of their culture into American culture. So you see how words from around the world came to America to form this weird but lovable American English, you know. Uh, when you're walking through all these foreign lands and sometimes foreign alphabets, and it's like being blind and suddenly something's in focus, <laughs> you know, right. where, where it's like blah, 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 bratwurst. You're like, hey, I know that word. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and you see how all these pieces of all these cultures came into America and, and then, of course, arriving into America and realizing, in fact, what it means. It was, it was as if I was walking through history. And then arriving into this 21st century America, it was a very special time. And one that I feel personally blessed and honored to have experienced. Because, of course, not everybody does. Not everyone's able to. So that is, it, it, it's an honor that I hold close. That I have been able to see America the way that I did. You know, I remember... Uh, certainly on the East Coast, just, you know, every, I mean, for weeks, everyone that I met at the cafes and the rest areas and the convenience stores and everyone was from somewhere else, you know, Puerto Rico and then Greece and Brazil and everyone was from somewhere else. I just, it was like suddenly, you know, the world was colorful again. It was right. very special well, it is a special opportunity to see it that way. We tend to, in our society, uh, blast through on airplanes and cars, and we miss most of the middle of the country by doing that. And for you to be able to take this journey around the world and then to experience your own country step by step, you know, through it all, um, you know, almost all the way across back, back to Colorado, at least. Um, yeah, that's a that's a special thing to take with you forever. So yeah, what would you say was the the scariest or most worrisome moment on this five year journey? Well, there were some times certainly. Um, I do talk about this in the book with greater detail. But coming across India it, during such a stressful time. I mean, it's a very stressful place to travel anyway, particularly as American woman alone, and then you add the after 9-11 war in Afghanistan and riots going on, you've got some stress going on, right? So, Sure. <laughs> so, like, my stress-o-meter was, like, beating heavily into the red zone. And um, I was really just on edge, a place that I really have never been and don't want to be ever again. And but I think to some degree it really saved my life. So I was so stressed out. And there's an energy that you create when you're when you're that on edge. And I think it's the same strength that comes from when you hear these stories about how grandma lifted the car off her grandson and saved his life. You know, um, it, there is a strength that comes with that. And so there were. It, Three times this happened, and it happened all in a two-month period across Turkey and into Greece where someone tried to attack me. And I think it was the high stressometer and the strength that inevitably comes with that that saved me. And because 
you know, <laughs> now I'm only five foot two and at that point, a hundred pounds <laughs> scared the hell out of them. And, um, so that whole period that was really when I was that stressed out and that aggravated, that was just an awful time. And, you know, I go into more detail in the book about it, but it's, all to answer your question that's not really a moment but it was more of a lengthy thing and it it took me about you know a good six months to a year to come down off of all of that really the enormous stress that comes with with just the being hassled constantly and you know because they're not used to seeing a woman alone and so i'm i'm glad that's over with anyway but um, the period of your nerves just being on end the entire time yeah, yeah, exactly. But then again, I think that probably saved my life because if you're not expecting, I don't know, my normal self would have just sort of gone the other way. I probably just would have gone limp, but I was so stressed out. Get the hell away. You want a piece of me? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> I have this vision of this big guy turning around and running, and I was so wound up that I ran after him. <laughs> good, good picture in my head. Ah, uh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I have a picture of him look as he's running, looking behind, going, "Oh my God, she's a crazy woman." We'll so. find another one. I'm not messing with this one. That's awesome. That's right, Matt. So I have to ask, how many pairs of shoes? Oh well, that costs a dollar, so I'll bill you. But uh, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> 29 pairs of shoes. Wow. The 29th pair was actually only the last mile, but I have added it to the tally, even though it only made it a mile. So, uh, 29 pairs of shoes. That's yep. amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> all right, Polly. Well, the Adventure Sports Podcast is all about inspiring people to do amazing things or even little things. Just get out and, and do something. And if you're not the inspiration that we need to hear. I don't know what is. It's been my absolute honor and pleasure to be talking to you about this. I'm going to go out and get the book myself. I can't wait to read it. I have a million questions I could ask you. We could make a five-hour podcast about this, but I do want to respect your time and, and cut it off here. Thank you so much for being on with me. Thank you so much. True pleasure. True pleasure. Would you like to be a guest on our show? Just go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click contact us.